Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm talking to one of my favorite people, Whitney Cummings. Writer, director, producer, actress, stand-up comedian, published author, and animal activist. And she now has her own podcast, Good For You. Actually, that's the name of the podcast, Good For You. Not Good For You, Whitney, but Good For You, Whitney. Whitney was still in her 20s when she had two shows on network television. One she was the star of, and it was called Whitney, which ran for two seasons. In the other, Two Broke Girls, she co-created with Michael Patrick King, and that ran for six seasons and is in syndication. She's got razor-sharp business instincts, Ivy League smarts, and an insane work ethic, and a fearless comedic style. So settle in, because there's lots to learn in this one. This is Whitney Cummings. Oh, my God. Whitney Cummings in the house. (laughs) So proof of life here. I know we are both live technically in L.A. County, but Uh did you like take an airplane to get here? (laughs) I moved like 10 miles away and everybody thinks that I like need a passport to come into town. I know what it feels like. I know it's far. I live out in the woods. Um. Because I, I just I, I don't do well with noise creatively, I realized. And I was I, I had had a house and I was going to an office to work, which I think psychologically is just like for creative types. Um, but I just decided I wanted to go into the woods so that I could focus more. Be and, away and from do people. You, and do you focus more? I do. I get so much more work done now. Um, and I just think in general, I think artists, we need to be in nature. We need to be in near the dirt. Mm-hmm. It's my new thing. I'm a crazy Topanga lady now. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, a lot of crystals in, in uh, a lot, no on crystals. the coffee table. Don't try and draw the line. No bullshit crystals. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I like being I like being out in the woods. I like being out in the woods. That's interesting. I like it. And you like all the animals. I like all the animals. Uh, I just, I like the solitude. I like the focus. I, and I got a place that was big enough to be able to build a podcast studio in my house. So. I know, which is kind of <laughs> remarkable. Yeah. So. And you, it's one of those things where you decided to do a podcast. Yeah. And I remember running into you and you're like, I'm going to do a podcast. Yeah. And I probably said it much more begrudgingly than that. Because <laughs> now as a comedian, having a podcast is just like having a website at this point. It's not really optional. So I right. felt it was, this was not a consensual podcast. <laughs> Time's up on podcasts. But uh, yeah, it feels like pretty necessary now, I think. Yeah, and you've had crazy success right out of the bat with it. It's weird. I mean, I, I think that the key to any success now, I think, in our business is just being able to surrender when you have a really strong skill in one area of the business that is no longer necessary, that has become obsolete right away. You know, so it's like j- just when I really figured out how to make television, the TV business kind of completely changed. Just when I figured out how to make movies, the movie business kind of disappeared. <laughs> so now I'm finally just like because I'm the person that was like so uh, reluctant to like get on Snapchat, to get on Instagram. I'm the person that's like, 
like, this is never going to catch on. I mean, I remember arguing with someone about Twitter, being like, this is never going to catch on. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so now I'm finally just like maybe overcompensating the other way when it looks like, you know, the business is going in a certain direction. I just like jump on the horse and don't ask questions. And why do you think podcasts work so well with comedians? I think they work so well with comedians because we're used to talking. We're naturally kind of engaging, um, off-the-cuff funny. But I think more than anything, it's because um, people are used to seeing us being really funny uh, and gregarious. And when we do podcasts, sometimes you see the sad, dark, vulnerable you know, side of us, and that's surprising. I think that the thing everyone's looking for right now is surprise. And feeling like they are witnessing or participating in or engaging with something um, that is real and that is surprising and that you can't find anywhere else. And I think that, you know, Mark Maron really kind of was the first person to be a comedian who then talked about, I have depression, I have anger issues, and I have, you know, and he was being vulnerable. And I think a lot of people are just interested in the sort of secret life of comedians offstage. Mm-hmm. And and just sort of our ability to be um, sometimes... Uh, self-destructively so, um, so forthcoming about our mistakes and shortcomings. Well, you once told me that there's nothing more scary than a comedian who gives no fucks. (laughs) I said that? (laughs) (laughs) It's a scary... Yeah. Hashtag Monique. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But um, but I think comedians, because we're so quick to... uh, Overshare is probably what makes us compelling. Well, talk about overshare. With no boundaries whatsoever. (laughs) I listen to your podcast and I'm bl- I blush. Uh-oh. Like I'm you talk about everything. Yeah. And I'm shocked. Yeah. Like there's no, no I black out so I don't remember anything that I say. I don't think about it. I forget we're rolling. I can't believe I haven't been canceled. I mean a comedian talking for 2 hours it's like something is going to go wrong. You're bound to say something you're not allowed to say anymore. Um but uh but look, I mean I I, I think that people now have a uh, higher expectation for what you're going to share and how much you're going to share. Um the days of like being an enigma are over. <laughs> the days of like having secrets are over. Mm-hmm. People expect to know everything about you and um, the intimate details of your life and psyche. And if you're not doing it, someone else is gonna. <laughs> so you're either you're gonna play ball or you're not gonna play ball. Oh my god, I know all the like the dick talk, the porn talk. Mm-hmm. The you just got to go in there, right? You I just... mean, comedians getting you know talking for two hours. It's it's always bound to go there at some point. But I'm trying to have a really diverse array of guests um, where it doesn't always necessarily go in that direction. But I'm still figuring out what it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not as experienced a podcaster as you yet. And but I do think that, you know, people, especially comedy fans, want what Joey Diaz calls the wiretap. Like you just, people just want to hear people talking. They don't want to hear it edited. They, you know, are doing their laundry. They're driving around. They kind of just want to hear an authentic conversation that doesn't you know, it took me a minute to figure out, like, because I come from TV and movies where you make everything perfect and you rewrite for six months and you do the goldenrod pages and the salmon pages and you're reshooting and you're rewriting and you're in, the, you know, still tweaking in post and you get to make everything better with music at the end. Like with podcasting, it's just, you know, for me, sometimes I'm like, how do people not think this is boring? Like, isn't this boring? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that people, um, it's just a new art that I'm, I'm just not, I'm not used to yet. It's like a community around it. All right. I want to talk to you about your Netflix special, Can I Touch It? I loved it. And I I want to know where your robot is. It's frightening. (laughs) I am her. That was a fright. She's right here. You're talking to her. Very very (laughs) impressive. But for a show like that, how much do you 
obviously you workshop it. I know you have yeah. an insane work ethic. You go out, you do the shows, you figure out what works. But yeah. how long does it take to prep a special? Oh, that one took forever. You know, I think it's actually getting harder and harder. Um because there's so many late night shows now and there's so many great comedians on YouTube, on Instagram. You know, it used to be like if you had a premise, if you wanted to talk about, um, you know, uh, crystal water bottles since we talked about crystal, you know, by the time you write a joke about it and tour with it for six months, Jimmy Fallon could have done it and Samantha Bee could have done it and Trevor Noah could have done it. And, you know, there's so many um, uh, Twitter could have done it. Someone on, you know, Facebook or Instagram, a meme could have done it. You know, there's so much comedy out there right now that you have to be more specific. And if you don't get something on television before someone else does, you got to kill a joke. So because uh, I was talking so much about what was going on with sexual harassment and stuff, I, I had like an hour and then someone else goes and does a version of it and then you have to cut 10 minutes you know because I don't want anything to be like what anyone else is talking about so Mm -hmm. you know I think your work has to be more and more specific now and more um something that no one else would think to do and then I wanted to do something really really memorable I mean I think just saying jokes for an hour like I think those days are going to be over very soon um and the next generation wants something bigger. They want something louder. They're watching, you know, prank shows. They're watching Impractical Jokers. They see incredible Photoshop. They see incredible animation. Like, you know, comedians, we just really have to, like, step up in terms of big ideas of how to make our specials, like, special. So I started... Uh, writing jokes about sex robots and I got so obsessed with them and I got so obsessed with getting the argument right because we're also in this crazy feedback culture where now people get to tell you that what you've done is problematic or it's just you know so I think talking about something like sex robots was such a tricky territory to go into um that I really wanted to make sure I was like you know, checking every box and covering my bases so that nobody could, like, come for me. So I went down to the sex robot factory to really do a bunch of research to make sure that I wasn't, like, you know, pro-incel or something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I was just like, there's, you know, because jokes aren't jokes anymore. Everyone thinks that, like, we're actually, you know, impacting people's choices, which is not what comedians do at all. Like, we do not have that power, and it's crazy that people are trying to give it to us now. But um, so I went down to the robot factory, and as soon as they said that they could make a robot that looked like me, I was just like... Here we go. And I think that with comedy now, you know, I think Jordan Peele has changed comedy a little bit and it's evolving. You know, it it just really when I was sitting in the movie theater watching us and people were laughing, but they were also horrified and gasping. I was like, shit, that's the new way that comedy is going. And when I brought her out on stage for the first time in La Jolla, the audience gasped and laughed nervously and some people were screaming, some people were uncomfortable, and I was like, that's the next level for me. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I know how to get laughs. I know how to get applause breaks. Like, I want I want that thing. Mm-hmm. Wow. And how, how are you feeling about the whole PC culture? I, it's, it, this is going to sound dismissive and, and probably surprising. I, I don't think it's real. It's very small. Um, you know, comedians, we know that this is like a couple thousand people. Uh, you know, I was in the Twitter offices and they were um, telling us that uh, – there are 22% of Americans are on Twitter. Of that, 2% generate 80% of the comments. 
Wow. <laughs> it's just, it's it feels bigger than it is. You know, I definitely think that there's a lot of progress to be made. There's a lot of words we should not say. I totally agree. But this, like, idea that there's, like, a PC frenzy and that comedians can't make certain jokes, most of America does not feel that way at all. Most of America just wants to go to a comedy club and for someone to make them laugh is kind of at all costs. And they know that what comics say are jokes. Like, America <laughs> still understands. Like, a comedian might say something they don't believe or they might just be trying to get a reaction. Like, that's what they do. Um, comedians are not politicians. We're not, you know, humanitarian. That's not what we're signing up to do. Um, and I think America understands that. But I think that what's going on right now in this PC culture moment, cancer, I mean, I think it's very much about the president and not really about comedians. And if that changes, I think it'll kind of mm-hmm. it'll kind of go away. But what people don't understand they're doing is that it, comedy comes from things that are taboo and things that are off limits. And what PC culture is doing is just making more things off limits. So it's really just helping comedians. <laughs> It's really doing the exact opposite of what you think you're doing. When you try to silence comedians, you just make us funnier, <laughs> you know. But I, 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 it's it's helping comedy. It's kind of backfiring on the on the fake justice warriors, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. The more taboo you make a word, the more comedians are going to want to say it, and the more they're going to make fun of you guys. You're just giving us more shit to make fun of. <laughs> and you've you've dealt with a lot. I, I feel like from uh, observational. Uh, perch yeah that i had yeah you had so much success kind of so young mm-hmm. in terms of your show and your i mean obviously it was the right. roasts i think that's right. how you came up right, right. on the right. comedy central roast yes. and then you were on chelsea's show right. and that's when i first remember right. seeing you and be like oh my god that girl's so funny i love chelsea's show i watch that all yeah. the time right yeah. i loved that kind of format so i was into that and that's when i first discovered you yeah. and then you had your own show right uh, and then you did something else with the, like a talk show, and then you were right. doing a thing with Michael Patrick King and mm-hmm. Two Broke Girls. And I feel like you, your success brought on a disproportionate amount of schadenfreude. Yeah, yeah. Is that accurate? Yeah, maybe. You know, I think, you know, the most interesting, I think, part of that was I think it had a lot to do with the fact that I was making multicams. And I think anyone listening to this um, show, uh, you know, will have an understanding of what that means. But it's essentially I was making shows that were kind of out of vogue in a way, not with America, but with Hollywood. And uh, multicam is a Seinfeld or Mad About You or Friends, something that has a live studio. Traditional. Traditional, you know, which it's so funny that people, you know, and the shows when they came on, uh, it was The Office was on, 30 Rock was on, you know, single camera NBC shows were very in vogue right now. Parks and Rec being understated, being super dry um, and subtle, you know, it was kind of the trend in like hipster comedy. But, you know, me and Michael and then the show I did for NBC was very much a traditional, um, you know, multi-camera show. And people had this like a weird thorn in their side and they were like oddly nettled by the idea of someone uh, – in an audience or, you know, people kept saying, like, was that a laugh track? Like, all of a sudden there was a lot of cynicism around multicams, even though that's what we all grew up on. And and reruns of Seinfeld and Friends were still the top rated shows, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men and not Mike and Molly. There was one other. How I Met Your Mother. How I Met Your Mother. These were all the top rated shows. So there was there was a little bit of a. Um, a dissonance. There was like an incongruence, uh, you know, between America and Hollywood. You know, America was watching multicams, but critics in Hollywood were having like a backlash against them. Um, and the 
biggest shows the kids are watching were Disney multicams, the Wizards of Waverly mm-hmm. Place and Zach and Cody. You know, there's this whole next generation that wants to watch multicams as well. So I think that one of the constant struggles for any um, definitely comedian, but writer is always like, am I going to appease Hollywood critics or am I going to be mainstream and get actual numbers and make something that people are actually going to watch? Because it's very rare that something is both mainstream popular and critically popular. And for me, as a comedian, it was just like a no-brainer, like, yeah, I'm going to make a multicam with another comedian, Chris D'Elia, and do it in front of an audience. And, you know, America liked it, but, you know, Hollywood people were sort of like, this is so loud and trying too hard, you know? It's like, um, but I also think that was maybe one of the last ad campaigns that was really like ubiquitous in a way that you could be, you can't be ubiquitous anymore because there's, you know, social media has made marketing so stratified, (laughs) you know, I mean, there's shows that are hit shows that I've like never heard of. (laughs) I'm just Mm -hmm. like, I I didn't know this was a show. How are other people finding out about it? How are 10 million people? Like I've never heard of it. You know, some things just won't get to us anymore because of the algorithm. But it used to be, we would look at like billboards. Everyone would see the same billboard (laughs) and there'd be Mm -hmm. like, we would know what shows were on. Um, you know, there was some award show nomination that just came out and I looked at the contenders and I didn't even know a couple of the shows. I was like, how could I not know a show that's on? Um, so that was one of the last, I feel like, ubiquitous ad campaigns that I think, you know, at a time where TV was starting to change and less people were watching television in general, especially NBC at the time. You know, there was mm-hmm. just nutrition. Netflix was kind of just starting. Um, and I think that it was an ad campaign that was like sort of the last ditch effort to get people to watch a network TV show. And I also, the show tested really highly. That's the other thing that, you know, um, I test well, guys, believe it or not, who knew? Um, so I think that there was this crazy ad campaign and, you know, the more you see someone sort of, the more you hate them, the more you hate, you know, it's just sort of this thing of like, why is she trying so hard? It's like, I didn't make those billboards. (laughs) Like I didn't put them up. How did you, (laughs) how did you handle that? Because, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but no. it's been long enough that yeah. you have perspective on it. Yeah. And to go through that, to create this thing, to have that success, to be anointed, at yeah. least to have that opportunity yeah. as like a, you're still in your 20s. Yeah. I mean, like you're just like yeah. basically. I was like 27. Yeah. It yeah, was ridiculous. The, it was ridiculous. And I didn't know how to hire people at that point. You know, like there's this great writer, Eric Zicklin. Um, uh, he was on Frasier. He's been on a bunch of stuff. And he he said he was just like, when comedians get TV shows, like he's like, it always blows my mind because it's like saying, hey, you're a really good comedian. Now run a 7-Eleven. <laughs> Like, that's what it is. I mean, you're running a 7-Eleven when you're running a TV show. And it's like, I was a comedian. Like, I didn't know who to hire. And I just hired people that I thought were nice that I had good chemistry with. That's not <laughs> how you're supposed to sort of do it. And I didn't know how to fire people. I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. You know, no one really tells you how to be a boss. Like, there's no – I know that in Hollywood there's, like, some showrunner sort of, like, classes or something. Like, I never took any of those. I had no idea. Um, so I think the big struggle with me for the first couple of years was just, like, realizing, like – oh, the way TV works, everyone that's writing on your show wants their own show. They're there because theirs didn't go. They've got some other development deal or they've got some other show that, like, it just didn't occur to me that there weren't writers that only work on your show. Right. (laughs) Like, that's, like, I thought that was a thing. I thought, like, oh, they're all here to make your dream come true. No, they're just here because theirs didn't go and they're waiting they're developing for next pilot season, their show. They want your job. Like, that was just like a 101 naive thing that I didn't understand. And also, this was back in the day, and this actually is really interesting to me, where you would make 24 
episodes in a row. That's kind of unheard of now. You know, I mean, now with mm-hmm. I think part of the reason so many of the you know Netflix shows are so good and um, these HBO shows is that they make like 10. <laughs> they have a year to eight, make some eight, of them. sometimes eight to 10. That's I mean, the English model, you know, you get to actually have time to make it good. We were doing the assembly line, Lucy with the glove on, the, you know, like bottles coming down the line uh, way faster than you can keep up with it. So also there was just there's no way to make something consistently really high quality when you're doing 24 episodes in 26 weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's like. You know. And do you tune out the noise? Um, I You know. I think so. I, I, you don't know what you don't know, but I do remember um, being in the writer's room when I think it was the, the NBC show was happening and Two Broke Girls was happening concurrently, and I had to go to some, like, event. And I didn't even know about all the billboards. Like, I didn't even know about the ad campaign that was everywhere because I was working. Like, I didn't see it. I went from home. I went, drove from a mile to the studio in the back, and then I drove over the hill my first time out since we were in the writer's room and I saw a billboard and I was like, oh, Jesus. And then I saw a bus with me on it and I was like, oh, fuck. And then I saw like another billboard and I was like, you guys, this is a lot of billboards. And I assumed that was like just in L.A., just like an ego thing. But it turns out I was like on popcorn bags. Like it was just like it was just too much. Like, um, And then I went to this party and people came up to me and they were consoling me about something that I didn't know was happening. Everyone was like, you know, just hang in there. Just hang in there. They're just jealous. I'm like, who's jealous? They're like, just don't. Just look. People didn't like Seinfeld the first year it was out. I'm like, what? What are you like? I was like, what is everybody talking about? And then I made the great mistake of googling myself, and I was like, oh Jesus, you know. So, um, but no, I get it. Look, if there was like a show called Lindsay with some girl named Lindsay, I I wouldn't be making jokes about it, you know. I, I mean, I would just be like, Lindsay's here, guys. We gotta go watch Lindsay. I mean, like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Which, by the way, that was not the name of the show when I pitched it. Yeah. Um, I think that at the time they were just like throwing stuff at the wall because nothing was really yeah. working, and they were like, let's go back to this old school model where you name a show after a comedian. Yeah, and it really did, you know. And first of all, I will say 40 episodes of a television show, I totally see as a success. And I think it was time to end it for so many reasons, which, by the way, we're also getting a 1-8. That would have been a huge hit today. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, literally. 1-8 is in 1.8 million viewers. No, 1-8. I guess that's, what, is what that is that, mean? five? That's like five-something million. I mean, the, a hit show right now is getting a 0.8. And we were getting a 1.8. I mean, it's just everything, you know, we, me... I think it was, uh, what else was on? Uh, the Office, uh, Community member. I think we were paired with Community. And this was at a time where the TV ratings were just changing. And I don't think TV even knew yet that ev- all the numbers were going down. You know? Remember Mindy's show was on Fox, I think, the same time. And everyone was just getting lower and lower numbers. But people didn't realize it was just people leaving TV, not not watching that show. Mm-hmm. You know? So I feel like TV, we're always the last to know what's going on. <laughs> well, it's all changing. The podcast world will be changed by the time we're out of, out of uh, the door here. Yeah, but I, that's so true. That's It's, it's very There'll true. But I think the podcast is going to be the next big, I mean, it already is, but is the, is the thing. So crazy. The fact that we put, you know, $5 million an episode into a thing that takes two months to make and then it goes, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this we can put out tomorrow. <laughs> you know. I know it's uh, and then you basically your show monster success of two broke girls syndicated that's on somewhere every minute of every day my favorite two broke girls story is we went in 
Uh, you know, the great Michael Patrick King. And we had this script written and it was ready to go. And we went in and a male network TV head said, love it. I want to make it. Can it be two boys? <laughs> and there was a minute where we're like, ah, yeah, I, mean, I guess a two broke boy. OK, I guess Like we actually thought about it. But then Nina Tassler, of course, the great um, Nina Tassler used to run CBS um, when it was the number one uh, network. And um, she was like, I was a waitress till I was 28. Let's do it. So great. She got it. She was chewing gum in the meeting. I'm like, I'm with her. I'm following her. And she, she, I mean, she was so freaking smart about it. She didn't make us change anything. She really protected what we had written, even though it was really, I mean, we got a lot of crap when that show started casting because it was sort of like buzzy around town. But people were saying we said vagina in it too much. It was too dirty. Like there was a lot of kind of negativity around it. And then the table read, once we got Kat Dennings and got that table read and found Beth Bears, who was just like, you know, to play the the blonde. I mean, we tested so many people. We auditioned, I mean, hundreds of people for that part. And Beth came out of nowhere. I think she had like one credit. She had done like, um, she was like in a, like a pageant in Seattle. Like it was, oh, I love a pageant. Had, I love a yeah. pageant. And she came in and just killed it. And um, I remember Nina Tassler said at the table read after uh, we did it, she said, Kat Dennings is going to be the highest testing person of pilot season, which for those of you listening, that just means like when they focus test it, she tests very highly. And uh, that was it. And she did. Obviously. That was it. Off the charts. Right. I think she tested higher than William Shatner did in whatever that my crap my dad says show. Right. Yeah. Not Star Trek. Yeah. No, I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> and I would imagine. Uh, but that's that was a big deal for a woman to test yes, really highly. Is. It's hard because especially with like bitchy women, it's like, you know, it's easy not to like this was before, like, being shrill and acerbic was kind of in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> before anyone wanted that. Oh, thank God Michael Patrick King has always loved that. Always oh. loves loves the dark corners of women's psyches. Right. What did you learn working with him? Oh, my God. Michael is, you know, as you know, did, the I mean, Sex and the City, which was like my religion um, for the longest time. And the comeback, which is just so incredibly nuanced and complicated. The comeback needs to come back. I mean, it's everyone I talk to. I know. Talks about know. references that show. References like it was ahead of its time. Oh, my God, that was my favorite show. Yep. They can go back and speak. The specificity that people have around that show is incredible. Mm-hmm. Like they'll dissect a scene and remember that person was in it for needs every to come back. observation that's currently being made about how women are judged and pulverized and um, subjugated in this and criticized unfairly in this business. Every one of those observations were made in the comeback <laughs> in a very deft uh, way. I mean, there was and then on the comeback comeback. Um, there was that whole episode about if a woman doesn't wear makeup, uh, an actress, she's called brave, you know, and mm-hmm. it's just it's he, he did it so well. And him and Lisa are just like um, that. I mean, that's that's also it's so hard to make a television and find a great pairing of people. You know, the Larry David and the Seinfeld, the Lisa Kudrow and the Michael Patrick. You know, it's really all about it's it's just as much about the idea and the writing as it is to the people you pair up with. Lightning just has to strike so many times, mm-hmm. you know, for something to go well. But Michael, um his his obsession with specificity because there is a little bit of oh we'll find it when we get down there you know we'll find it when we get we'll let the actresses you know he is like you know a perfectionist in a way that at first I was like this is really detail oriented and then I was like no this is just like what it takes you know um, Michael also will 
protects his characters. He's so protective once he figures out what a character is. I remember, um, and he's so uh, loyal in terms, he's so loyal to reality. Like he won't let anything move faster than it actually would in real life. His whole thing is like, what would really happen in real life? You know, which is in a weird way, not what I thought writing was. I was like, no, you have to make up what happens. And he's like, what would actually happen? And sometimes the best writing isn't your imagination. It's just playing out how it would actually go mm-hmm. in real life, if that makes any sense. He's all about grounding things. He's all about making um, making it happen uh, in a way that is incrementally honest. So I remember on the pilot, uh, Kat Dennings and Beth Bears' character were sort of enemies in a way. They didn't get along. They were kind of like oil and water. And But in real life, the actresses were becoming friends, obviously, you know, um, and you know, they were not supposed to get along. It was supposed to be a very slow burn that they were going to start growing on each other. And at the last scene, we had this crane coming and they were walking away in the night uh, down a street in Brooklyn. And Beth and Kat just kind of naturally grabbed each other's arms, you know, to like kind of walk down the street. And Michael was like, no, that can't happen. Like that wouldn't happen with that's happening with the actresses, but that's not happening with the characters. And I remember being like, what do you mean? It was, well, it's kind of a cute thing. But he he's just he is so locked in to the reality of the characters. I think it's really easy when you're on set to get lost in the actors and the people and the moment and to forget that we're not here to all be friends and we're not here to, you know, have a rap party. We're here uh, to tell the truth about how this would actually play out. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing with Michael. Everything's got to be earned. You know, nothing gets to happen just because we're on a TV set and we have it. Because the problem is that you you turn to a magician when you're running a show. You can get any prop you want. You can get any person you want. You can shoot a thing. You can go get a horse. You can go get a, you know, costume whenever you want. Um, but Michael is uh, all about, you know, restraint and really, like, teasing things out. He's very, very patient in his storytelling, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Because he's like, the longer we wait to do this thing, the more powerful it's going to be. When sometimes the instinct is, when you're insecure, is to just kind of, like, throw the kitchen sink of, like, here's all the jokes. And, you know, um, he also is, you know, because Michael was a comedian. He was stand-up, you know? So it's all about the laugh for him. When he's, It's not about his joke or his idea. It's about the best idea. And there are a lot of, you know, egos in our business. Spoiler alert. <laughs> and, uh, and Michael just has no ego. If mm-hmm. something gets a laugh, it's in. Because mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't deny an involuntary response from people. Right. If something makes right. people laugh, it's in. Don't ask questions. You know, Michael knows when to overthink something, but also when to underthink something. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it just is what it is. Did you take some of that when you went into showrun for Roseanne? Did you were you able to take some of that with you? You know what I was, and and that's a really interesting question because Roseanne was always so so real, so real, and so grounded. Um, and Roseanne was actually a pretty big inspiration for Two Broke Girls, you know, for me. I grew up on Roseanne, and we mm-hmm. were making a show about money, or lack thereof, and not having any. And I remember when we were making the sets of Two Broke Girls, we referenced Roseanne a lot. We really wanted to feel, you know, we didn't want to have a fake, fake, r- fake poor people, you know? Yeah. I mean, even down to the costumes. Like, Kat Denning's character had, like, four shirts, and that was it. And she re-wore the same four shirts. She wouldn't have any more than that, right? She wore the same shoes for, I think it was the whole six years of the yeah. show, you know? Like, Michael is all about the reality. If these people are poor, they're poor. Why would she have these Gucci shoes? She would never own these, you know? Like, every all those details matter to him. And I did bring that uh, to Roseanne because, for me, the wardrobe, the set design of Roseanne, the makeup or lack thereof was such a big part of selling the reality um, of this family. And, like, I always bought it. I always bought Roseanne. 
uh, big thing with uh, Roseanne also is not being afraid of the silence, not being afraid of the pathos, not being afraid of the emotional moments. And Michael really, I, I really learned from him how to segue from a really big funny set piece to an emotional kind of profound moment. I want to take it way back. Uh-oh. 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 <laughs> Should I start crying now? Oh, my God. Sobbing. Literally the body language. I wish <laughs> the listeners could just see what happened in the room right now. So you grew up in D.C. Mm-hmm. And you've been very open about this. You grew up in a less than desirable environment mm-hmm. in terms of what was going on in your home life. Mm-hmm. Um you didn't grow up with any kind of financial security. Right. But somehow, somewhere around 14 or so, you managed to get out of that situation uh, mentally, mm-hmm. basically, and rewrite, retrack your life. Right. And you ended up at Penn. University mm-hmm. of Pennsylvania and Ivy League. Without Rick Singer. Mm-hmm. Without Varsity <laughs> Blues. Without. Uh, uh, I didn't need Becky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever it was on the water polo team. <laughs> Which is kind of remarkable. Yeah. That, first of all, you would go there and that you, you know, very academic, very rigorous, very competitive, um, full of a lot of rich people. Yeah. And Ivanka was there when I was there. Was she? Yeah. She was like walking around in her Jimmy Choo's. We were all in like Crocs and Uggs and looked like sea creatures. And I was like, who's that? I was that? She was going to Wharton. I can't believe her you high just heels, said Crocs her, right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I blacked out. Her after. high heels on yeah. cobblestone. Like it was just like, this is a different species of person. <laughs> Did you interact with her at all? Never. Never. I think I saw her like at a party once, but I didn't really party a lot in college. I was like... I, like, did six courses a semester and expedited and did it in three years because it was so expensive and I couldn't afford it. <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about Whitney then. You know, I was, like any successful person, um, I I definitely, you know, I, you know, this is, I don't want this to seem like, you know, some kind of, like, sob story. Like, I have a very addictive personality, you know, and I get it honestly. I come from addictive personalities. I think I just figured out a way to become addicted to something sort of healthy (laughs) or productive um, or something that would sort of ensure financial security. The addiction I got was like work. And I was never the smartest person in the class, but I I was always the hardest working. And then I realized like if I just, you know, my my work ethic actually stemmed from insecurity. I found myself as always like the slowest reader. I was the worst at math. And I was just like, I have to work 10 times harder than everyone. And once I got even to the skill that I was good at, I just sort of like kept that habit, you know? I think doing comedy, especially like, you know, I think people think we just go out there and just like make it up as we go along or something is like for every performance you see that looks spontaneous, there's like thousands of hours of preparation that goes in, you know, to it. And um, I never I just I never got anything easily. So I just developed the work ethic of, you know, trying twice as hard as everyone else, you know, the because I come from sort of a hectic home, I, I know everyone does. Very quickly, I realized, like, the best way to survive in this home is to just kind of be perfect, like get straight A's, you know, um, achieve highly, do well on your SATs. You know, we couldn't afford SAT tutors, so I had to sort of teach myself, um, you know, so it just it, it when people say you have a good work ethic, I'm like, well, this is I mean, I, it just doesn't occur to me that it's something like special or 
it's just not really a choice. It's just the only I mean, I, you know, grew up watching a single mom and then I had two single aunts that I live with. For I just always saw women working their asses off, you know, so that's like the only thing that I've ever really no. Mm-hmm. And so when you're at Penn and you see Ivanka or Jimmy Choose <laughs> and 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 uh, I've been there. It looks a little like Hogwarts, it does, you know. It does. It totally does. It's got those cool towers and stuff. Yeah. And during that time did you decide, "Oh my god, I'm going to take my Ivy League education and do stand up." <laughs> you know, I thought I was going to be a journalist. That was my dream in life. I when I was in DC, I interned at a local news station uh, and then I went to Annenberg when I was at Penn to study journalism. And I think that journalism and comedy are the same, are neighbors in the brain. It's observing, it's ferocious curiosity and kind of an obsession with justice. Um, you know, I think comedians just need a little more attention maybe than, than journalists. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're just a little more immature. And I found myself... Um, really trying to learn the art of objective journalism, but I just am constitutionally incapable of being objective. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I did this um, uh, when I was uh, an intern at NBC in DC, uh, they offered like to read the prompter to get like a reel, like a demo reel that I could give an agent or something. So uh, I put on a, a shirt from Express, my best shirt, and I was reading the local news from the teleprompter and the story was because, you know, local news is always so sensational and so dramatic. And so it was like something about like lead in your drinking water. And, you know, this little boy had been kidnapped and I could not do it with a straight face. I was like, who would want to kidnap him? Like, what? like, I just couldn't stop making jokes. Like it was just I realized stuff that is dark. My coping mechanism is to laugh. Um, But stand-up still wasn't on the table. I came out to L.A. I was really doing more hosting work. Like, I covered the coverage of the Sundance Festival for Sundance Channel. I used to be the host of the festival dailies on the Sundance Channel, (laughs) which I can't believe we didn't, like, cross. I mean, I was... How did we not? I was 23, and I was running around the Sundance Festival, like, interviewing, like, people making documentaries on, like, the Iraq war. And I was like, Hey, so what's your shingle? Like I was being such an asshole. (laughs) Like, I don't know how I got that job. Um, I was a correspondent for two years and then I became the host of it. Um, so I was like, you know, um, I was like testing to be like an MTV VJ, like stuff like that. And then I went in, uh, to audition for Punked, which was that prank show at the time. And, and Ashton, was Ashton, Ashton Kutcher. Kutcher yep, yeah. yep, yep, yep. That's exactly right. It was like the secret season that he had gone on the news and said that he had canceled. And I ended up getting that job um, because in the audition, I didn't try to be funny. I played it like super straight. Um, and... And then that was it. And there were so many comedians on that show that it was like, oh, I guess I'm that's my like BJ Novak had been on it. And and then I just started doing stand up. Uh, so when was your first time on stage as a comedian? It was I must have I want to say it was like 2005 uh, at a place called. So the great thing about L.A. for comedy is there's lots of rooms. You know, there's comedy clubs, but there's also lots of rooms like there was a place called M Bar bowling alleys there was remember Miyagi's mm-hmm. there was it's a sushi restaurant on Sunset used to have a stand like there's stand-up rooms if you go to any restaurant in LA there's someone doing stand-up in a room next to it you know and um so that was the first time I I went uh Natasha Legera I remember was there the friend Pat Oswalt was there and the alt comedy scene in LA was just kind of really starting to hit with UCB coming in and stuff so I more started like on the east side in mm-hmm. little shithole rooms. Mm-hmm. And was it that first laugh that you got in that shithole room that made you go, I want more of that? It's so wild because I feel everyone's like, don't you get nervous on stage? I feel like 
and this is going to sound corny, but when I went on stage for the first time, that's the first time I felt like normal. I was like, oh, this feels, this is it. This is, this is the first time I'm not nervous. Like I'm not, I had been nervous most of my life. And then when I go on stage, everything kind of clicks into place. I'm not saying that's healthy. I'm not saying I'm proud of this. Uh, I, I hate it as much as you do, but it just was like, oh, I, I mean, I spent my whole childhood performing for drunk people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it is a perfect, you know, way to recreate my childhood. Like it makes total sense. Like I spent my whole childhood being like, let's just keep laughing. Let's mm-hmm. keep this positive. Like, you know, yeah, keep drinking. Let's make sure we don't fight, you know? That's all I did was like jazz hands as a kid, uh, trying to make sure everything stayed copacetic. So it was like doing it, you know, for a bunch of people that actually were like there to laugh was like, oh, this is it. Mm-hmm. You know, I but you know, you you know, everyone told me to be a stand up before I was a stand up. Like, you know, it's, it's you know, people's way of telling you to shut up, really. But I would like go on these like crazy stories and like, you know, and people be like, you really should maybe try stand up. Like it's people's way of saying, like, please stop yelling at us with your opinions at dinner. Um and then the people I met, it was like, oh, you're my people. You know, mm-hmm. there's also that, like um, meeting other comedians and feeling like we were like instantly family and thought the same way mm-hmm. and went to the same dark places and thought the same things. It's the first time I kind of just felt like normal, you know, and I was like, oh, I know how to do this. And how is your relationship with money now? You know, I, I don't think that's something you ever get right with. You know, I have like a scarcity complex. I've had lots of, um, you know, you never stop having come from uh, financial duress. Like both of my parents had strokes without health insurance. Like I've had like crazy, you know, setbacks financially, even after becoming solvent where you're just like, oh, well, you know, the first year that I made money, I didn't know how money worked and I couldn't afford to pay my taxes that year because I I thought the amount of money you had in your bank account was the amount of money you had. No one told me like, oh, no, at the end of the year, you have to give half. It was the first year I'd ever paid taxes because the first year I ever had enough money to. That's just fake money. Yeah, no. And they were like, it's like, you don't. there's a lot of the money you have. You have to give to someone at the end of the year. Well, I think uh, someone explained it to me as uh, living in Los Angeles in Hollywood. You actually get 11 cents on the dollar. Whoa. By the time it's a agent, manager, lawyer, Uncle Sam. Wild. Publicist, Wild. publicist, if you have one, yeah, yeah. the whole deal. Cents on the dollar. Social media manager. Yeah, now. Now. It's probably um, nine cents on the dollar, right? Jesus. Yeah, you know, for me, like, I still I, I still live, like, I, you know, have not made money. <laughs> it's just my um, constitution. I have a lot of fear around it. Um, but I think comedians, like, I'm not the person that's like, comedians have to stay sick to be funny. But I do think, you know, I do end up giving money to family members, you know, in kind of living in that scarcity zone, because I think that's also where you end up being funny, getting too comfortable. I mean, comedians, like, we're funny because we're irritated and we're funny because we find flaws and things and we're funny because we're angry and shit. So usually money is sort of the, th- I mean, I will, like, buy something, you know, online. So, like, success is kryptonite then? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's, it's there's no shortage of things that successful comedians will complain about. <laughs> It's just it's like the more our problems get solved, um, the more uh, we complain about how hard life is. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's always a it's always a thing. And, of course, it's, you know, I find other addictions, whether it's like animal rescue or whatever, where I'll end up spending more money than I should on stuff and sort of recreating this stress cycle for myself so that I always have to keep working. But I also want to be in a situation where it's like because you lose money in television now, you know, for the Mm -hmm. most part. So for me, I work really hard in touring and other things so that I can do my like side hustle, my my mistress that is television (laughs) 
because it costs me money to do TV at this point, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I like to work really hard so that I could kind of take a year off, you know, to make a TV show. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of it's like having a kid at this point. You just like lose a year of your life to make TV. Right. 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 Yeah. So let's say you're driving down a <laughs> dark highway, okay. right? Like. Right. Let's just say L.A. to Vegas. Okay. Right. Okay. But it's like at night and there's not a lot of cars on the road, uh-huh. like two in the morning. Yeah. OK. Uh-oh. And you see like a wounded animal. <laughs> like a like, I don't like know, a jackal. No, maybe not a jackal. Maybe just a dog. Maybe okay. like a stray dog. Yeah. Or maybe a jackal. Yes. <laughs> and then and then you see like me with uh-huh. like a, a wounded <laughs> You on the side of the road at 2 a.m.? Me on the side of the road. I have either questions. Like, I, had a bi- I was biking for some reason, <laughs> and you're like, and I just want to want to know, and like a semi is coming in the other direction. <laughs> Who are you going to save first? You're going to mm. save the jackal slash dog? How injured are you? You know, I can't walk. I mean, I can maybe. How old's the dog? <laughs> we don't know. It's dark. <laughs> Um, but the dog's cute. But I know you. You're Krista. Are you Krista to me, or are you just some person? Let's just say I'm just some person. Okay. Well, that changes everything. <laughs> now it's that I'm a no-brainer. Um, no, but if it was I'm, me, it'd be a little bit harder. I'm not. Yeah. See, it's just. Uh, look, I'm not a total psychopath when it comes to humans. I mean, the whole animal thing is just more like, you know, I uh, was talking to the psychiatrist. I was making a movie about neurology, and he was saying that, um, you know, the area of the brain uh, that is basically animal abuse and human abuse, it's kind of the same thing. Because people always want to say, like, well, why do you love animals so much? What about saving people? It's the same thing. And this is kind of one of the only ways to show the next generation compassion for things that are, you know, have less power and things that are voiceless is to show the next generation how to treat something that has less power. And I think it's we're all scrambling right now of how to prioritize our time of like what to do right now with this kind of apocalypse and, you know, how did me too? And how do we help women in film? And how do we help under and how do we help with the diversity? And how it's like for me, like once I learned, you know, that combating animal abuse helps the next generation of children have more compassion. It was like, okay, that feels like something that is like a real impact on the largest number of people. Do you feel it's been, I mean, you, you started young, you've been, you've been successful for a decade, right? Yeah. You've been in it. Yeah. So clearly, uh, there was a before and an after, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's your take? I mean, you feel like have, has your phone rung more because you're a female voice and, you know, people want to hire you for things or yeah. they want your input yeah. or I have, you know, it's such a complicated issue and I, I can't speak sort of, you know, to the exact metrics yet. I just really try to just directly mentor people. So I like called my agency and I was like, bring me three projects from women or diverse writers that aren't getting made and I'll help them get made like that that I know how to do I know how that can directly impact things whereas I don't know how Twitter and Instagram and these photos of us all at award shows I, I don't know what that's really affecting how that's affecting change on a real a real level you know and um and I think we you know I I just I get frustrated when line producers aren't a part of their conversation because you know it's a very it's not a very sexy title line producers who are basically the the math dorks of any production they're the ones that actually get the people hired those are the people we need to be engaging with yeah, I'm definitely seeing a lot of different people tell stories who didn't get to tell stories 10 years ago you know um I mean I mean the amount of attention that I got for my show coming out was crazy I mean it was too much so much of it was sexist I don't think the kind of 
you know, attention I got back then would be tolerated today. That I can say for sure. I mean, in the reviews of the show I made, reviewers were talking about my body. They were saying I was skinny. They were, um, you know, calling me shrill. I mean, I was I was called shrill for real in a review. And now there's a show called Shrill. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's how that that is different. I don't think that um, people could get away with that anymore. I mean, there was a reporter um, for the New York Times magazine who literally said to me on a call, I was 27 years old and I made a joke about it. And he actually ended up getting fired over this. But he said, uh, hey, I heard in the roast that you slept your way to where you are. Is that true? I mean, it was like, <laughs> like crazy. <laughs> you can't talk to people like that. You know, the thing that that frustrates me that I'm seeing behind the scenes is like this, like terror whenever there's a woman in the room, this kind of overcorrection of like, hey, do you need anything? Are you OK? I'm like, dude, I'm not going to sue you. I don't have time to sue you. Like, you're the least of my problems today. You know, this this I, I just don't want things to backfire so that everyone assumes that every woman is like made of glass and you can't talk to them or shake their hand or hug them or give them any criticism. You know, well, Does it's, that it's, it's been an interesting thing to watch the pendulum swing, yeah. you know, swinging yeah. in both directions and it needed to happen. Yes. And to me, it's unrecognizable from the city that I moved to. Yeah. 20 yeah, years I ago. bet. I than how bet. it is now. It's just good business. And like when you hire women, like it's just good business. Like your business flows better. Things are more productive. Like I'm not running around hiring women because I like feel bad for them. It's selfish. <laughs> they just do a really fucking good job, you know. And when you have diversity in your office, like the shows are better. It's just that simple. Shows are better when the room is not all white people. Mm-hmm. Like just switch your brain from this being like you're doing everyone a big favor to it's actually selfish. Your show will just be better if you hire Diverse people and women. Just make it more of a mercenary approach, you know, I think is is probably more the way to go. Do you think that um, I've noticed that comedians kind of have put their foot off the gas on um, this current administration and all the noise yep. around it? Yep. Uh, that's blasting, you yeah. know, three, four times a day yes. and 37 Twitters in a weekend that's and right. all that stuff. Is That's right. Is there a reason for that is it just fatigue or comedy fatigue around it or it's no longer funny or it's a little bit it's emotionally exhausting i think yeah yeah i mean i think it's a little bit of both i mean i think comedy is all about surprise like what's the most surprising thing you can do what's the thing nobody's heard and people talk about trump all day and there's a lot of really funny people tweeting about by the time you get on stage at eight o'clock at night people have been on twitter and have they already know everything they're already ahead of you. like, um, And at this point, the most surprising thing to do and most refreshing thing to do is really not talk about him unless you have an angle that no one else has. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, the audience really tells you now, like it's it's turning it's a little bit of a jukebox mentality now. You know, I was at the um, comedy store recently and there was a comedian doing jokes about fat chicks. And this lady in the audience just went, can you stop? <laughs> I've never seen that before. I mean, that's new. It's new that people in the audience get to fast forward through your material. This is totally because of social media and podcasts and people feel like they have a vote now. And they do. You know, if they like it, it gets in the algorithm. If they comment on it, you might comment back. Um, And so I think that in terms of when someone goes on and brings up Trump, the audience just goes, oh. You feel it in the audience. You just feel the, like, groan of people like, oh, I came here to not hear about this. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. John, or uh, it was Seth Meyers, uh, you know, his Netflix special, he had that skip Trump jokes button. I mean, that was wild to me. 
the idea that he's like, I'm just going to give you an option in case you want to opt out of these, you know. But yes, I think that there's um, people are sort of running out of the bandwidth for it. And, uh, you know, I just think people have heard everything. And mm-hmm. there's just sort of a cheapness about it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to watch. All right. I have I have time for one more question. I know. Yeah, I know. What are you obsessed with that would surprise me or surprise Ooh, listeners? That's like a really that's good like question. that's a good question. Um, I'm obsessed. A lot of things I probably can't tell you about because it would be polarized. Uh, have make me um, like people's certain people's Instagram feeds, <laughs> certain celebrities' crazy Instagram feeds. I probably can't share those. Like I have a bunch of chains because me comedians are we're monsters. So there's a couple. Uh, famous comedians and I have these like chains where we make fun of people's Instagram Mm. (laughs) feeds like all day because it is wild to see some of your heroes just completely you know lose their minds on on social media um I'm really into uh you know I'm, I'm working on something now I'm really into robots I know this sounds you know I obviously had to be for the last special I totally immersed myself in it but I'm working on the tv version of super sad true love story the great Gary Steingart book um that takes place in the future and I've had to like learn a lot about you know what's going to happen in the future and um what it's going to mean for us to basically live our lives essentially for public consumption um and pr- the privacy stuff we've had to dig into I mean we essentially everything we have ever said and <laughs> written is sort of going to be fair game soon enough and uh I'm kind of into that and I'm also just got really into uh my like ancestry have you done the 23 and me ancestry thing not yet, because then then it's Big Brother owns your DNA. Oh yes, yes, Big Brother does own your DNA. But also, this is what I, this is literally. And I don't I'm know if with. I have a relative that killed someone, but and I, I don't want to. That's be- it. They found the golden. <laughs> don't you want to know which one of your relatives probably killed someone in the seventies? Like you know, every everyone has that one uncle who has like a taupe bomber jacket that you're like, I feel like you could have. <laughs> Drug a couple. A little sus. <laughs> yeah, super sus. Um, but yeah, they found the Golden State Killer because one of his family members just took a 23 Me test. Like, you know, and I'm just fat. I, the comedians, like, we tend to move towards, like, really uncomfortable polarizing areas. You know, talking, being pro-robot was actually, like, I didn't even realize how... Uh, incendiary a stance that was. I mean, that's a really raw nerve for people, especially as robots are taking jobs and as people are truly deeply uh, afraid of robots, Um, which I, you know, I love learning the biological basis for fears like that because essentially... Our, our fear of anything that is like a doll or like a you know scarecrow or a robot or something, it's called pathogen avoidance. It's our brain's way of making sure we don't procreate with something that could be sick or dead. Anything that looks human but doesn't quite move human, that's our sort of, you know, hippocampus, like very deep reptile brains way of making sure that we don't, you know, like I'm just obsessed with the biological basis of, of um, current sort of fears like that. So I've been digging a lot into what's going to happen in the future uh, so that I can make that show. Um, and then I want to do a show sort of about uh, sort of my ancestors and the ancestral trauma we all inherit. And I found out that, you know, I have ancestors. Um, uh, I go back to Virginia, West Virginia and Texas. So some shit went down. <laughs> some shit <laughs> definitely went down in West Virginia and Texas. And uh, and I kind of want to make uh, a show about that. So when I'm making a show about something, I really just like immerse myself into it in a way that's probably not particularly healthy. <laughs> but that's it. I don't really have hobbies. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't. You know me. Yeah. All I like all I do is work and I'm about to do, you know, twenty two cities because, you know, the upside of what's going on, um, with uh, you know, social media and sort of the collapse of movie and T V in a way is um touring. It's it's huge. It's a huge, huge market right now. You know? And you get to see the you know, you get to interact uh, and it's exhausting, but it's gotta be so rewarding. Well it's nice to just see human beings yeah. that you know, and to just that just wanna laugh, you know. I think that we're in this echo chamber if we think that like no one wants us to say anything or behave it's just it's not true. You know, we're letting very few people control a narrative. We're very letting a couple haters um change the course of comedy evolution you know and it really is um dangerous that we're allowing uh people just because they have a social media feed to imply that comedians have some kind of control over people's behavior and i I, no offense to all of us but like we don't have that much power you know but i think because there's so much we're, we're feeling really helpless about um in terms of things we can't change right now that comedians are like the easiest people to kind of go to um well it's great to see you you too good luck with the tour thanks guys thanks thanks so much for joining me whitney's special can i touch it is streaming now on netflix please subscribe rate and review this podcast wherever you've been listening you can follow me on twitter and instagram at krista smith join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at present company